In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we have a very exciting episode for you. So we'll start off by talking about uh, recent news from OPEC about limiting their production of oil and the political implications, the foreign policy implications, all. We'll get into the implications. It's all about the implications, mm. really. Um, and then for our second segment, we'll be talking about the role of the private sector in the pharmaceutical, like, industry and in, in driving innovation there and the role of the public sector and how they kind of stack up. And then finally, we'll be talking about the roles of regulation in the marketplace and specifically the role that economic regulation can play in helping to uh, align the incentives for companies to act well in our society. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited. Uh, I do just want to warn everybody about this first segment, that it might be a good thing that they're not sending us as much fossil fuel because sparks will fly. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of good, but the opposite of good, mm. Michael, what bad. are the COVID numbers? Uh, they're bad. Um, <laughs> not necessarily worse, but, but we'll yeah. get there. Uh, so worldwide, we've hit 631 million total cases, uh, with average daily new cases over the last seven days of 413,000. That's down uh, about 6% from 438,000 the week before. And as a reminder, last week, it was up 12% over the week before that. So it's kind of rebounded, a little, like down a little bit. In terms of death, we've hit 6.58 million total deaths worldwide, with average daily deaths over the last seven days of 1,114, which is down 4% from 1,156 the week before. Vaccination worldwide, 68.3% have one dose and 62.9% uh, have, have two doses of the vaccine, uh, which is just a little bit higher than it was previously, about a tenth of a percent. In the U.S., we've hit 98.9 million total cases with average daily cases over the last seven days of 26,000, which is about flat compared to the week before. And in terms of death in the U.S., we've hit 1.091 million deaths, which average daily deaths over the last seven days of 199, down 14% from 230 per day the week before. Um, as a reminder for the week before that, we were up 14%, so we've kind of again, kind of, uh, bounced back and forth. And then in total, uh, total, uh, vaccination in the U S we've hit 79.7% of the U S population with at least one dose and 68.1% with a second dose of the vaccine. You know, every time you read the statistic about the percentage of people that have gotten one dose, I'm reminded that the anti-vaxxers, the anti-vax movement mm. really is a small minority. Yeah. I and mean, you said, you said 70, 79%? 79.7 have at least one dose. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a little over 20% that don't. Yeah. And, and that, and I that mean, 20% includes like, you know, like kids and people yeah, that might true. not be as, you know, enthusiastic about getting the vaccine and, and all that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's not necessarily people that think that there's a chip embedded in the vaccines. I think sure. that I think that those voices are often just over overhyped by the media. Mm-hmm. And it's really not as big of a number. Like I know people that fall under that. Yeah, I mean, me too. when it's about a fifth of the country, yeah. you're going to know somebody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Like, like one three hundredths of the population in the U.S. has like died from COVID. And yet we all know someone. Yeah. Or know somebody who knows someone who died from COVID. Yeah. So like or, 20% or is way more people. than that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of knowing things, let's increase our knowledge about OPEC, Michael. <laughs> All right, let's do it. So why are we talking about OPEC? So after like 100 days or so of declining gas prices over the summer in the U.S., OPEC or the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, decided to screw us over. Uh, so OPEC Plus is like 23 countries. I think there are like 13 like core OPEC countries. Uh, the two like leaders of OPEC are Saudi Arabia and Russia. Um, OPEC is an oil cartel. So essentially it's a bunch of different uh, countries that all collude to set oil exports, oil production, and and therefore try to influence the price of oil. Yeah. So they came out with an announcement towards the beginning of October that they would be cutting their target production of oil by about 2 million barrels per day, which is the biggest production cut since lockdowns and since, like, everybody stopped using gas. Now, one, one thing to call out here is that, like, 2 million barrels a day um, is like definitely a, like a pretty significant cut. Um, but in terms of the actual reduction, they're not like currently operating. They're not actually currently able to produce as many barrels as they're targeted. So they're currently already underproducing their targets by about three and a half million barrels per day. Yeah. Um, so ultimately the reduction will, re- will reduce the amount of oil in the marketplace by by between 600,000 to a million barrels per day. Still super yeah. significant, um, but just to call out the, like the 2 million barrels number is is like a, a higher number than the actual impact, and we'll get into why they might be doing that later on. Yeah, and it's about a 2% reduction globally. Which is um, huge. Yeah, it is huge. And it definitely does affect the United States. So as it stands... Of the oil that the United States imports, 11% of it comes from OPEC nations, and 7% of it comes from Saudi Arabia. Hmm. So Saudi Arabia is a huge oil producer. And one of the things that we've said on the pod over and over again is literally the only reason, the only reason why the United States even gives Saudi Arabia the time of day is because of oil. It's because of the fact that they give oil But it's also because of the influence that they have over OPEC. So it's not just the oil that we get from them. It's the oil that we get from other OPEC nations. Yeah, I think that's like that. I think that's so important to call out. And like the fact that we have a relationship with a authoritarian, like homicidal, theocratic, you know, genocidal Genocidal. (laughs) country that doesn't even result in us being able to control the price of oil yeah is is crazy like the yeah. fact that we are so dependent for such a key part of our energy on them is really crazy cuz like yeah. 
So this this reduction in the short term is expected to make prices rise um, for gas in the U.S. So Patrick D. Dehan, an analyst at Gas Buddy, said um, on Wednesday that he expects that the OPEC decision will increase gas prices between fifteen and thirty cents. So yeah. compared to average gas prices, that's like a four to six six percent increase in um, in average like national gas price. Yeah. So like very significant enough to exacerbate inflation and enough to like really hurt the wallets of consumers but perhaps like maybe more importantly to them and maybe to us it's enough to affect literally the voting patterns of consumers yeah yeah and that's part of why we wanted to do this part of why we wanted to break this down because you might have noticed that in the last week or so the gas prices are starting to creep up again Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because of this all right the reason why you're going to see gas prices increasing over the next week and why you've seen them increase is because of this yeah and i think that's important to call out because once again republicans are going to try to use this as an excuse to attack biden Mm -hmm. now that's something that often happens, like regardless of who is president, yeah, they're often blamed for gas prices mm-hmm. or praised when gas prices are, are better. And there are some ways that you can specifically point to for why they might have some impact. For example, Joe Biden is currently considering releasing some more of the United States' strategic oil reserves. And if he does that, it is very likely that gas prices will go down a little bit. They did go down a little bit when he did that, when he did a little bit of that the first time. Mm -hmm. However, it's a lot more complicated than just bad policy by the president, regardless of who the president is, automatically equals bad gas prices. And the way you can often tell is by looking at the rest of the world. (laughs) Yeah, looking at fucking collusion in the world's largest oil exporter. (laughs) Exactly. Well, sometimes sometimes looking at like what the rest of the world is doing in terms Mm. of exporting, but also looking at what are are gas prices looking like in other countries? Mm -hmm. You know, if gas prices are high in Britain, which they are, maybe it's not all Biden. Now, I want to make something clear. I'm going to relentlessly shit on Biden a little bit later in this segment, so just be prepared for that. <laughs> Don't think that I'm I'm saying that because I'm a Biden lover. I'm about to shit on him. Mm-hmm. But to blame him specifically for the the increase in gas prices is just not accurate. It's yeah. just not it, it it's 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 just flawed logic. Yeah. Yeah. So let's I think we should take a minute to talk about why OPEC would make a decision like this because I think that'll like lay yeah. some of the groundwork for for some of these comparisons and discussion of like Joe Biden's response and whatnot. So their their claimed reason um, is the potential for a looming global recession. So they've claimed that um, they're basically trying to keep prices elevated in case demand drops during a recession. And that, you know, their their statements have been that it is a purely economics-motivated decision um, and that they're trying to, you know, buoy the price of crude oil in order to um, make sure that they are not, you know, 
significantly hurt in the face of potentially a recession that causes demand for crude to go down as people restrict their activities and spend less on going places and uh, and there's less like economic activity generally and stuff like that. On the other hand, um, one thing that is like kind of interesting about this is that the European Union is facing an energy crisis, right? And inflation in the EU is is significantly being driven by fuel prices, right? So they're literally facing the potential for blackouts and shortages during the winter and the potential for like businesses to close and never reopen and thus face an economic contraction that affects both consumers and producers and could so potentially like rising near-term gas prices could literally lead to or contribute to pushing the EU over into a global recession, right? And who would benefit from the EU being pushed to the economic brink? Huh. Something tells me it might be a man that every time I picture him, he's petting a cat and sitting <laughs> on a chair. <laughs> see, see, when I picture him, he's... He's riding a bear <laughs> with no shirt, <laughs> but maybe I have different fantasies than you do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's exactly it. So Russia, who's that's an you know an OPEC member, one of the leaders of OPEC, specifically asked for a reduction in the target production of oil. So they asked for a million barrels per day reduction. In negotiations with Saudi Arabia, um, that grew to the two million barrel per day reduction number. Because again, like Saudi Arabia and Russia and the rest of OPEC, generally speaking, their interests are aligned um, around increasing the price, the price of oil. And for Russia, that helps them even more for a couple reasons. One, um, a higher global price for oil um, helps increase the price. So, and it helps. Um, Russia, who has had to take, you know, provide discounts on selling oil to the few countries, mainly in Asia and, and uh, specifically China, who continue to buy tons and tons of oil from them. So like lot as a response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a number of Western nations cut down or totally got rid of their import of Russian oil. So as a result of this decreased demand, they've had to, uh, you know, China and other Asian countries have had them over a barrel so to speak, um, and they've needed to provide discounts. So, so if the oil, you know, price goes up globally, that will help them increase their, their, uh, their price to sell oil on, you know, to these few countries. Aside from that, increased global energy costs will put more and more pressure on EU, on the EU to avoid recession and to avoid blackouts and, and energy shortages. Um, putting more and more pressure on them to decrease or weaken their support for Ukraine, weaken the strictness of their sanctions against Russian energy. So it is a like very clear move on the part of OPEC in support of Russia's, uh, you know, agenda in Ukraine and against the EU to make this move. And I think that's a really powerful argument to improve like energy independence generally because the fact that they can that there's a group a cartel of oil producers that can literally influence the european union 
to potentially reduce support of <laughs> of like a, a a a nation being invaded by an OPEC member, and the fact that like they might literally influence uh, the the American electorate to yeah. put Republicans in Congress instead of Democrats, and they have so much power to do this, and the fact that they can say we're going to reduce by two million barrels per day even though the effect will be only a reduction of at most a million barrels per day, but that will get headlines and that will freak people out and that will increase gas prices worldwide. That amount of influence, especially led by Russia, an authoritarian dictatorship with with international um, ambitions, and Saudi Arabia, who we've we've already listed their credentials, (laughs) like... like the power is in the wrong hands here. Yeah. Yeah. So it is true that at first glance, it does seem like a small percentage of what the United States gets in terms of oil, in terms of natural gas, uh, in terms of fossil fuels seems relatively small, but think about how much gas prices increased when we cut off trade from Russia. Mm -hmm. So, about 8% of all U.S. petroleum products, which includes crude oil, comes from Russia. Well, came from Russia Yeah. prior to, uh, prior to the sanctions. All right. The reduction of, by 8% was enough. I mean, that, I mean, to be fair, that on top of supply chain issues mm-hmm. was enough to skyrocket gas prices more than they had ever been. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're about to see imports reduce, the fact that that is already starting to have effects on our gas prices is is massive. And it means that we are dependent on these nations. So to Michael's point, it is also causing political uh, the political opinion to shift mm-hmm. against Democrats. And I just want to point something out, all right? In response to that, Biden, the Biden administration is now rethinking our relationship with Saudi Arabia. And good, I want mm-hmm. them to. Yeah. But I am so fucking pissed that this is what it took. All right? We didn't break off our relationship with Saudi Arabia when they were committing a genocide in Yemen, hundreds of thousands already dead, blockades put up on their borders to prevent humanitarian aid from going into the country, to prevent humanitarian aid from going to millions of people, millions of people on the brink of famine, on the brink of starvation, because of Saudi Arabia. That was not enough for us to reduce our relationship with them. We were giving them weapons deals. We were selling them weapons. Now, we claimed that it was defensive, but that's complete bullshit. How can you sell... First off, how can you sell defensive weapons in an offensive war? Second off, couldn't you very easily justify the idea that if you put those weapons on one of those ships in the blockade, that that's defensive? You could easily justify that. And several human rights organizations made that exact point and called the Biden administration out for that. But no, you sold them weapons when they were committing a genocide. All right. You fist pumped the crown prince when he fucking, he, the fucking Saudi Arabia government killed an American journalist. All right. 
They have, they have backwards-ass policies. They have a guardianship clause for women in their country. All right. We, we spent all this time talking about how terrible the Taliban was when they took over Afghanistan and put back women's rights, which they absolutely did. And they're fucked up for doing that. But meanwhile, we criticized them while we were supporting Saudi Arabia that is not much better. And this is what it takes for you to rethink our relationship with them? Oil? Of course it is. Because that's what it's all about. All right. It's always about the goddamn economic benefits. It's not about the humanitarianism. It's about the goddamn economic benefits. And I'm so fucking sick of it. All right? This is why we have to end our reliance on fossil fuels. This is why we have to invest in solar energy. Even if you don't believe that climate change is real, which if you don't, Congratulations for still listening. Yeah, why why are you listening to this pod? Congratulations (laughs) for sitting through our bullshit. But like, even if you don't believe in that, you must, you must still, in your heart of hearts, think that American independence on foreign oil, on foreign fossil fuels, is still important. And to that end, we have to invest in in renewable energy. We have to invest in wind energy, in solar energy, in hydroelectricity. We have to invest in alternatives because we can't keep supporting these regimes, all right? The fact that oil is so integral to our economy, that the thing that causes us to rethink our relationship with a homicidal regime is not the fact that they're a homicidal regime, but the fact that they reduced, not even stopped, but reduced the amount of oil that we were getting is just fundamentally fucked up and it goes against everything all of the values that we claim to have you're 100 right i'm glad the sparks flew i'm <laughs> i'm glad i'm not surrounded by crude oil no. <laughs> no i think like you're you're absolutely right like this is yet another argument in favor of energy independence which more and more is an argument in favor of renewable energy like, no, we don't want to be beholden to OPEC. We also don't want to be beholden to domestic fossil fuel companies either. Yeah. You know, like the yeah. fact that the fact that like, um, like corruption comes from OPEC or corruption, like it comes from political donations to, to, you know, Joe Manchin, like these should all make our skin crawl. Yeah. We, these all of all of, the fact that keeping our lights on is a source of corruption in yeah. our government is incredibly short-sighted. It's something that none of us should stand for. And you're right, Nathan, the only path forward, the only path out of that corruption is renewable energy. The reliance on fossil fuel incentivizes our entire system to be complicit with evil. All right. At best, that evil is homegrown. Mm. All right. Is homegrown fossil fuel industries that bribe politicians that destroy our communities and and poison the world at worst it's propping up genocidal regimes yeah all right we I have was, to end <laughs> our fossil fuel dependency because it makes us complicit with evil i was i was going to make i was going to make a point earlier that like you know if the people in yemen 
if only they could influence our elections like OPEC, yeah, then we would be on their side. And then yeah. I thought, well, if only they could vote, then we'd be on their side. But <laughs> your point just that you just made, Nathan, makes me realize that like so many voters have communities being destroyed by yeah. fossil fuel companies. So many voters are going to be the first people significantly affected, like that literally day to day are the people significantly affected by climate change. Like many low income voters are going to be the worst off as climate disasters get worse. This is all already true. But the fact is that like voting is not as important as corruption. Voting is not as important as direct like influence on our government. And that's what OPEC has. That's what domestic oil, like, you know, uh, fossil fuel manufacturers have. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, what would life be without homegrown tomatoes? There's only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. Money can't buy? I guess that's right. I guess you no, have to because it's homegrown. It's homegrown. Yeah. Some things, some things that make the world a better yeah. place, like yeah. homegrown tomatoes, you just can't buy with money. Yeah. Funny thing is, I love that song. I actually don't like tomatoes. I don't even know what if that song homegrown. is. <laughs> it's John Denver. Oh man, I it's a John never Denver heard that song. song. Wow, you don't yeah. like tomatoes? tomatoes I hate okay? tomatoes. Do you like tomato products like ketchup and marinara? Yeah, sauce? I do. Okay, like but not I, tomatoes. but like just tomatoes. Like even mm. if it's homegrown, I've I've tried to like people mm. say, oh, well, you just have these store bought here. Have this homegrown. It's like no, this is still disgusting. <laughs> Only people in your rural communities say that, Nathan. <laughs> if I say I don't like tomatoes, no one suggests that I grow them myself. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I just I just realized my redneck came out there. <laughs> it's like, wait, yeah, everybody says that, right? Yeah, Doesn't just, everybody say that's that? That's just the solution to tomatoes. I mean, again, I grew up on John Denver, so like of course, you know. Yeah. Twice in one <laughs> twice in one segment. Yeah. And, and you I mean, know and you know what? John Denver made the world a better place. Oh. Maybe we should just skip to that then. Okay. So Michael, in the interest of making the world a better place, mm -hmm. what is our tip for good this week? Our tip for good is very tactical, it's very straightforward, it's very easy. Maintain your fire alarms. Ooh. Every month, press the test button, make sure it still beeps. Uh, you know, regularly swap out batteries, and if it starts making a chirping sound, that means your battery is supposed to be changed, and then replace your fire alarm every 10 years. And you might be asking, Michael, last time you did a tip for good about fire alarms, it's because there was a fire. So you might be asking, Michael, what did you have a fire? <laughs> hey, yes. Michael, yeah. did you have a fire? Well, I didn't start a fire. So you might be asking, Michael, did another human that you live with start a fire? <laughs> did Bree start a fire? The answer is no. My dog started a fire. <laughs> I wish I were joking. <laughs> this past weekend, I just, I just imagine like you walking up to your dog with like a with a pack of matches and being like, "No, <laughs> no. don't play with matches. <laughs> matches no, are just, not a toy." She just loves to smoke in bed, you know. <laughs> no, 
It's terrible for your health. It is terrible, especially if you start a fire. Yeah. So, okay. So I was gone from the house for like 30 minutes. We don't lock our dog up when we're gone. She's fine. What I had neglected to realize was that from, you know, earlier that day, I had had some pizza and some leftover pizza and I had left my pizza on the stove. A normal place to leave a box of a box of pizza that's half consumed, in my experience anyway. Well, my dog, interested in pizza, jumps up, her front paws on the stove, and turns on one of our gas burners oh, God. underneath the pizza box. <laughs> and so it goes up in flame. I'm not there, obviously, so I didn't wow. see it. But it apparently it goes up in flame. It, by the time I get back, it is all straight ash. Luckily, our neighbor heard our fire alarm going off and called yeah. the fire department. The fire department came. They put it out. They uh, admonished me for letting my dog <laughs> play with the stove. <laughs> and Your that, stove privileges are taken away for three weeks. No, we got child protection things so that oh, she can't interesting. mess with the stove knobs anymore. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's why... We're telling you to replace your fire alarm because, like, I, I, the reason the story is funny, but the serious part of it is that, like, weird shit that you would never think of and never expect yeah. can lead to a fire in your house, and like, it can really happen to anyone. It can happen from a ton of different sources, and having a fire yeah. alarm can be one of the best ways that you have to protect yourself. Yeah, and that's tips for good. So if you weren't angry enough <laughs> about OPEC, <laughs> no, okay. So we are talking about uh, research and development and like innovation in the pharmaceutical industry. The reason we're talking about this is because in the U.S. we spend a notorious amount of money on drugs. So U.S. consumers spend roughly three times as much on drugs as European consumers. And after accounting for higher U.S. incomes, we're still spending about 90% more as a, as a share of income, um, per dose of medicine taken in the U S Americans spend about three and a half times as much as Europeans. Um, and like, even though their incomes are, are only about 60% higher on average. So like we spend way, way more on drugs and like a number of policies have like been proposed to kind of target this one is like, you know, government negotiating drug prices. Uh, another is like capping drug prices, even potentially like nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry. But the most common counter argument is about simple economics. It, it yeah. the, the argument claims the benefit of having like un largely like unimpeded um, free market is that it rewards innovation. Yeah. And if you start to cap drug prices or enforce a cap or enforce what's essentially a cap, they claim by making the government, who's a, the largest drug buyer in the U.S., like be able to negotiate, you're basically making a cap on drug prices, that you'll be stifling the incentive to innovate. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, these pharmaceutical companies are developing life-saving drugs. Yeah. Their research is contributing to the saving of lives. So shouldn't they be rewarded for that? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't yeah. they be given just compensation for that? And also, shouldn't they be allowed to 
set their price whatever they want to for the work that they did. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. as is often said, anything is worth what you're willing to pay for it. So if something's going to save your life, then you should spare no expense for wanting to buy it. Yeah. So here's why all that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so 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 first off, I want to just quickly dispense with two of like the component arguments. One is that like, hey, like the market innovation is what capitalism does. And like, that's just like one of the things that can potentially do, but it also incentivizes protectionism, right? It incentivizes lobbying and corruption, barriers to entry. Like innovation can be a good byproduct of the free market, but it's not an automatic or necessary byproduct. Sometimes it's one that like, it has to be incentivized um, actively. Secondly, like the, the claim that negotiating drug prices, which I've heard, which I've heard before from really smart people that, that Medicare negotiating drug prices would be the same as cap as capping them is like, it just doesn't hold up to like thinking about it a little bit. (laughs) You know, like if Medicare is negotiating is like a market player without the ability to negotiate, then it's essentially got an arm tied behind its back. Whereas like, and you know, and so like the fact that it's a huge market player means that it should be able to do what other market players do and negotiate bulk discounts, yeah. which as I mentioned, other people do, and it doesn't stifle innovation. Insurance companies and entire industries exist that are just middlemen between, between like pharmaceutical companies and like providing prescription drugs to consumers. And they do it on like a bulk basis, negotiate the prices down. And that's how they provide savings. Like, Lots of organizations do that negotiating, and as far as we can tell, it doesn't stifle innovation. So at the very, 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 very least, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices is a total no-brainer. Yeah. Now let's go even further than that. (laughs) At least I'm going to go even further. Yeah, yeah, I'm down. So here's another important factor that you need to recognize. When we talk about anything even further than that, but even just that, we're not saying that these, that these companies, that these pharmaceutical companies should not get their just compensation for what they have developed. Yeah. We're saying that you as the taxpayer deserve a return on investment from where your tax money has gone. So this requires a little bit of in-depth research and in-depth thinking in order to understand the scale of this because there's definitely a lot of conflicting numbers that if you don't follow the whole pattern of it you might come to a conclusion that is way out there yeah all right so the first important fact and we'll break this fact down a little bit but the first important fact to recognize is that according to the institute for new economic thinking u.s tax dollars have funded Every new pharmaceutical drug in the last decade. Every single one. Now, that doesn't mean entirely funded, Mm -hmm. but it means at some point in the process had been a part of that funding. Hmm. Now, that right there, for some politicians, that's where the argument ends and that becomes the talking point. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a talking point that might lead to a good conclusion, which is, you know, the 
the idea of either renegotiating pharmaceutical prices or potentially even nationalizing aspects of the pharmaceutical industry. But I think that it's important for us to go deeper into that because there are very easy counter arguments to that. Mm -hmm. All right. If you just end the argument there. So the main counter argument there is the fact that when you look at the total amount of money that is invested by the government versus in research and development versus what is invested by pharmaceutical companies in the United States, pharmaceutical companies invest significantly more. Mm -hmm. So, so let's, let's look at those numbers for a second. So this is based on, uh, 2021 numbers. All right. Let's focus specifically on the national Institute of health, which would be, which that's where the funding for government-funded research grants and and research rewards and, and research in general, that's where that comes from, mm -hmm. all right? So as it stands, in the year 2021, the budget for the National Institute of Health was $42.93 billion, and 95% of that was, was towards research. Now, compare that to pharmaceutical companies. According to Statista, in 2021, the total expenditures for research and development from U.S. pharmaceuticals was $102.3 So more than twice as much. Mm -hmm. So you could look at those two numbers and think, well, that means that the private sector is doing significantly more than the public sector. So they should reap most of the benefits. All right. And if you were trying to go in that direction, again, that's where the argument would stop. Mm -hmm. But we're going to keep going <laughs> because there because there's more important context that we have to that we have to look at behind those numbers. And that is the fact that there are different parts of the drug development process that the money is focused on. So usually, and this, this is according to a study done for the National Library of Medicine, or an analysis done by the National Library of Medicine. All right. Historically, the government investments is focused on basic drug discovery. Mm. Now, basic drug discovery is the earlier part of the research process. Mm -hmm. And because you don't know enough about the drug at that point in the in the process, it is the most risky. Yeah. All right. Between that and the actual late stage development, it slowly gets less risky. All right. But the the initial parts, the initial some of the initial trials, once you start developing the drug, once the drug is developed, the next riskiest part is going to be once you start putting it through certain clinical trials. And it's not that the private sector has no uh, has has no part in that. They absolutely do. But the majority of the earlier stages of that drug development is focused on the most risky part of the drug development. And the only time when pharmaceutical companies step in and join in on the process, usually by buying patents, is when a drug is seen to show promise. Mm -hmm. Specifically, that what that means is that a company has determined that the risk is outweighed by the reward, by the potential reward. Now, sometimes it might not pan out. That absolutely happens. But the reason why this is important context to understand 
is that what this means is that the risks, the risks associated with drug development are disproportionately carried by the taxpayers, but the rewards, the economic rewards are disproportionately targeted towards the drug companies. All right. So we run the risk of losing money, like throwing money away on a drug that did not work. Meanwhile, once our taxpayer money has researched a drug to the point where it shows promise to one of these larger corporations, they can swoop in, continue that research, develop it, and then sell it for jacked up prices. To Michael's point, we spend more on drugs than any other developed country. All right? Our drug prices are disproportionately higher. In some cases, in many cases, life-saving drugs can completely break, break the bank. It's part of the reason why healthcare is so goddamn expensive in the United States. It comes from the fact that our entire healthcare industry, not just in the payment of healthcare, but also in the payment for specific services or specific drugs or medical equipment, is so goddamn high in the United States. So, to recap, as it stands, the risks behind drug development are socialized, but the rewards are privatized. Which I think goes to like another part of this, of like the drug life cycle, which is, I think is very important, which is, you know, we talk a lot about like the innovation of new drugs. Um, but generally speaking, the things that we are like, like targeting with the negotiation of regulation of drug prices is and like the most egregious examples are like widely re like needed uh, established drugs. And of course, like, of course, this is related to the pipeline, right? Like if you can't like create a new drug, then you'll never solve the disease. And there are plenty of diseases that don't yet have drugs to solve them. But like, I think it's really critical for us to recognize that like insulin is not fucking new. Yeah. And like, there are plenty of drugs which have been around for a very long time. And pharmaceutical companies go through a number of practices and they spend a ton of R&D actually on adjusting and tweaking the formulas of existing drugs to try to maintain or retain their patents. Or they will just, it's so to literally just prevent people from being able, other people from being able to manufacture that drug. Or they will do things like rebrand an existing drug and then market it heavily through doctors to like to um to like cause the doctors to prescribe that particular brand of the drug and so like not only is like innovation largely dependent on public funding and the rewards are largely reaped by pharmaceutical companies but even when those drugs become like ubiquitous and like nationally required and also like like once their life cycle has been around, like they've been around for a long time, we still see these really high drug prices influenced by pharmaceutical companies. And like the fact that like we can't get to a place where we can provide where like significant portions of diabetic people ration their insulin. Like the fact that we mm -hmm. can't get to a place 
where like drugs that have that are like barely qualify for like the term drug anymore because they're so ubiquitous and so necessary and have been yeah. around for so long that we can't even get those to be like like accessible and affordable means that our system is just broken. Like these companies have reaped their rewards and yet they're still able to jack up those prices. And I think that's just like, we can't even solve the very end of the tail of the problem. Yeah. So let's talk about potential solutions because there are actually several potential solutions to this. The first one is one that has been talked about quite a bit in, in, uh, in political mainstream. It's something that Michael and I have talked about. And that's the idea of the U.S. government renegotiating pharmaceutical prices, all right? Giving the United States government the power to negotiate pharmaceutical prices, all right? Now, that would be an objectively better solution than what we're doing right now. But again, it's also important to note that as it stands... The riskiest part of the drug development process is carried on, is carried by taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And even under a system in which we're renegotiating pharmaceutical prices, they're still making a huge amount of profit when we're the ones that ran the risks in the first place. Yeah, yeah. So and there's still a fairness argument. They're also reducing their costs at the same time. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so we're paying twice in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So another solution would be a public option. Hmm. I remember they actually did do a public option for insulin in California. Newsom did, where the government basically creates a kind of generic version of a drug, hmm. and they get to they get to set a price. And the idea is that makes that price competitive with the price from the pharmaceutical company and that forces them to drive down the price which again is also a potentially innovative solution but again it also still creates the the system it, it adds to the system in which we are basically paying twice for the drug mm -hmm. all right another solution would be complete nationalization of pharmaceuticals meaning the research is nationalized and funded by the government, which, by the way, if that were to happen, it would most likely have to happen under some type of single-payer Medicare for All system. Yeah, sure. All right? It's, you, I, I, just, I don't see you being able to have a system like that if you don't also have a single-payer. I just, I just don't see that. And also, honestly, I don't think that there would be political will for that unless there was also political will for single-payer health care. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a good point. <laughs> you can never so, pass one of those. So that means that most of the research then would probably be focused on you know on the university level uh, as it stands a significant amount of research is focused on the university level and then the development would basically be focused on uh you know government run facilities mm -hmm. but then there's a kind of a less extreme version of that as mm -hmm. well which is the nationalization completely of the research aspect of it mm -hmm. but the privatization of the development all right. So you allow for private industry to still develop the drugs. All right. To develop, um, you know, the different the different formulas to develop uh, the products that then get distributed. And then you, you know, you would have negotiation of prices based on that, um, which yeah, under a single payer system, 
the the government would pay that bill and then it would be provided free at the point of service for 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 the people um which would still allow there to be a private industry that develops it but a public industry that focuses on the research hmm. and the nice thing about that system is that it does kind of reduce the incentives for corruption in research. Now, I'm not saying that it, corruption in research happens all the time, but I mean, it does absolutely happen. And when you do have a profit-based incentive to develop a drug, then, you know, that's that's always a recipe for potential problems. Hmm. You know, not but always. Then, but... then the, idea, the idea be that the drug developers at that point would like buy the research from the the public sector the idea would be the public sector allows them to do the development gotcha so like right. anybody can use like the the intellectual property developed in the public sector exactly and then you patent like your specific formula or exactly so I the see, idea would sense. be that nobody nobody owns that in that intellectual property because mm. it's it was publicly generated which yeah. means that it's publicly owned interesting All right interesting. and What's also nice about that system is that it prevents things like what happened with the vaccine, where all of these all of these major companies were lobbying to maintain the patents of the, of the vaccine so that other places around the world in in uh, in developing countries could not develop generic versions of these drugs because mm. there was a patent. But mm. if all of the patents were publicly owned, which again, in the earlier stages of drug development, they're already like the public has already fronted money yeah. in the development of these drugs. All right. So it's not like I'm saying that, you know, a corporation came up with a great idea and we just stole it from them. We started it. Yeah. We started them down that path. All right. And again, that 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 statistics that I read, that statistic that I read, taxpayer money has contributed to every single drug developed in the last decade. Every single one, all right? Every single one has been aided by our investment. So we invested in it, and then we have to pay for it again. So I actually think, based on all of this, that the best solution would be that one. Hmm. The best solution would be allow for the development part to be privatized. Have the patents be publicly owned meaning that they're the the intellectual property is publicly owned and the research continues to be publicly funded and now it's time for one of our favorite segments the d-bag award so nathan what the heck is a d-bag well michael we do the d-bag which is named after alan dershowitz mm, all right course. For arguments made by somebody that are so stupidly self-defeating that we just have to drag them out and point at them and laugh at them. Mm. And of course, it's named after that fateful time in which Alan Dershowitz stood in front of Congress and said that Donald Trump could not possibly have done anything that rose to the level of impeachment when he coerced Ukraine into, uh, into helping him win an election because he believed that it was within the nation's best interest for him to win the election. Fucking amazing. And he did it with a straight face, which he is why it it's face. worth an award. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, Nathan, who is our D-bag tonight? I feel like we're a broken record, Michael. 
<laughs> no, I get but that. I get that. It just, but this guy just, he just keeps, he, it, he just keeps coming. He, yeah. So, he just, so who is it? That way, does that mean that it's Kanye? No, it's not Kanye. Oh. Actually, it was almost going to be Kanye. Oh, uh, well, maybe next week. But no. Kanye will say some crazy shit next week. I'm sure. He said he said crazy shit this week. But no, this week, it's Senate candidate for Georgia, Herschel Walker. <laughs> Herschel Walker. Again. Oh, my and gosh. He's on a streak, but not like a winning he streak. He's on a streak. He's on a yeah. streak like, yeah. like the streak of like poo on like whitey tighties. <laughs> that kind of streak. Yeah. Like it's... I mean, look, look, I I was trying, I was actually trying to find someone worse this week, someone that wasn't Kanye West, that wasn't Herschel Walker. But honestly, so the debate happened between him and Warnock. And I actually want to issue a correction slash apology for a, a statement that I made in an earlier podcast. Mm. So in an earlier podcast, I actually criticized uh, uh, Walker for setting the bar low for himself by saying, oh, you know, he's going to, Warnock is going to destroy me because I'm not that smart. Like, I, I criticized him for that, for setting a low bar. And honestly, I want to retract that. I want to criticize him for not setting the bar low enough. <laughs> because after after looking at some of these some of these clips, some of these arguments that he made during this debate, honestly, the only way he could have possibly set the bar so low that he could have cleared it is if he literally said, when I get on that stage, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to take a shit, a literal <laughs> shit on the stage. And then I'm going to step on it. And then I'm going to like, and then I'm going to slip and fall on my ass. Mm. Like that's, that's the only way he could have so set what a bar you're saying is, low enough for him to clear. What you're saying is he did clear that bar. He did clear that. That bar. is he a did success. Not, that's he did amazing. not take a shit on stage. Okay. <laughs> so, so good Good job, bro. You, At least you not a literal one. Uh, yeah. Not a literal shit. <laughs> <laughs> he did it. He definitely took a verbal shit on stage. God, where to fucking start? <laughs> I mean, there's so much to get to. There's so much to get to. So, let's see. There was there was the this one moment where um, they were talking about the price of insulin, and Walker said, "I believe in reducing insulin, but at the same time, you gotta eat right," because <laughs> I he. He continued with uh, referring to referring to Warnock. He continued by saying, because he may not know, and I know many people that's on insulin, unless you have eating right, insulin is doing you no good. Oh boy. So you got to eat right in order to, <laughs> in nope. order for insulin to do you, that's not how it works. Yeah. That's totally that's not how it works. What about type one diabetes, dude? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you should be eating right and all. Sure, but like, sure, sure. I mean, that's, but also no, it does do you good. It keeps you alive. Yeah. It. <laughs> um, so at another point, he said uh, he, they were talking about healthcare, and he was criticizing Warnock for advocating for expansion of Medicare, and he said basically he wants you to be dependent on government healthcare, and I just want you to have the same healthcare he has. <laughs> Warnock is a senator. Which means his health care is government health care. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he doesn't understand that. He and in that same clip, like, in that same I, clip, I'm dependent on government health care. I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> in that same fucking clip, that same fucking clip, he tried he he tried to make the argument that 
everybody who is able who is working an able-bodied job which i guess means you know fuck you if you're disabled um has health care no no that is so not true that is oh my very gosh much not, yeah that is so far from true yeah <laughs> i mean unless able-bodied means something very specific <laughs> oh my god that is so not true holy shit wow yes yes uh at another point uh, we're not called him out for defending capital rioters while at the same time claiming that he was like pro cop and 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 walker's response to it was to take out a police badge like he just <laughs> took out a police badge that's amazing he's like how if i'm not pro cop then why did i kill a cop for this <laughs> <laughs> like and he was and apparently you weren't allowed to have props and he was admonished for that oh my god he was like uh you're not allowed to have props he's like oh no it's not a prop it's a real badge it's like okay but no, no, a no. real badge can still be a, a yeah. prop are you wearing it do, because do you... you're a cop <laughs> is it a uniform um, yeah well at one point apparently he claimed he was a cop and he wasn't but like we're really I, not we're really not I, used to having to tell people that they can't bring stuff on stage to make their points because they don't talk so good <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean honestly i i would not care as much about that like him having a prop but like it was just a weird moment is like you think i'm not pro cop because i support capital rioters i have a badge i have a bet look at my badge you see my badge <laughs> like, what the fuck? and then and then another on another part Another fucking part, uh, he was trying to call out Warnock for uh, the whole Black Lives Matter thing, saying, well, you're not consistent with that because, you know, you're okay with a bunch of black babies being aborted. So you don't believe that Black Lives Matter, which, bro, you paid for your girlfriend to have an abortion. <laughs> Shut up about abortion. Yeah, you're so Just weak don't on that talk issue. about it. Yeah. You've oh been revealed to be a hypocrite in this. Yeah. You don't get to make that argument anymore. Shut the fuck up. You know, Nathan, he was right about one thing. Yeah. A very important point. Yeah. He's not very smart. You're right. <laughs> Understatement of the century. Know thyself. <laughs> know thyself. <laughs> so congratulations to Herschel Walker for being on our show again. And for being this week's D-Bag. So for our third segment tonight, we are talking about regulation. Um, and so like, you know, if you listen to this show, you know that we are not, you know, enemies of regulation. Mm. But to be fair, I grew up in a conservative household. I grew up thinking that regulation was always bad like the enemy of the people the enemy of freedom the enemy of capitalism and innovation and everything that's good i remember <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is just an inane a crazy and inane position yeah um because like because like there are many kinds of regulation and they have a few different purposes and like and i think like what many conservatives like like argue against when they argue for regulation it's it's the kind of regulation that you know um basically like regulates businesses to uh, you know try to influence them to make certain decisions and not others um yeah. 
But like they rail against all kinds of regulation and well, except when it comes to your personal life, you know, like when it comes to uh, whether or not you can get abortion, regulate it. When it comes to whether or not you can uh, do marijuana, regulate it. When it You're comes right. to whether or not you can marry who you love, regulate it. You're right. They're not against indivi- regulation of individuals. Yeah. For the party of freedom, they're not against the regulation of individuals. They're against the regulation of corporations and companies. Um, which is again, crazy. So we wanted to talk through a little bit of like the purposes of like regulation, cause there are a few and, and specifically to talk about the power of the government to incentivize good behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about similar concepts like this before. I mean, mm-hmm. when you first pitched this topic to me, Michael, my first thought was, oh, this sounds like, uh, uh, libertarian paternalism (laughs) (laughs) yeah in a a way it kind of is in a a way it kind of is but but starting off with like a most straightforward form of regulation that like so many of us can get behind is establishing standards which i think all like so many of us take for granted but is such an important role like the fact that when you go to the pharmacy whether it's an over-counter drug or like a pharma like you know a prescription drug you know that it has been highly controlled and regulated. You know that it is the thing that's on the bottle in the amount that is described. You know, like you can walk into a pharmacy and really believe in those items that are regulated by the FDA, that they are what they say they are, and they will do at least to some degree effectively what they say they will do. Yeah. Contrast that to like, the fact that, you know, like, like homeopathy and supplements are not regulated and you yeah. run into a bunch of problems there where like literally the thing that is listed is sometimes not even present in, in yeah. the thing that you're taking. Yeah. I mean, and take regulation of the food industry. I yeah. mean, we often see TV shows in which the health inspector is this evil asshole. <laughs> I mean, like, I think I'm thinking Bob's Burgers. I'm thinking thinking spongebob <laughs> um, you know they're just they're it's just this cartoons, asshole that's yeah. trying to trying to fuck over everybody and like i'm sure that to many business owners the health inspector can sometimes feel that way sure but at the same time the alternative is to not have a health inspector <laughs> and to go to a restaurant to get a burger not knowing how much shit might be in it literal yeah. shit yep because sometimes when a cow is being cut and butchered, they accidentally cut the large intestines mm-hmm. and it sprinkles shit all over the meat. And because we have a regulation of the amount of shit, amount of fecal matter is allowed in meat, which by the way, the amount of it, it's not zero. It's not the zero. amount of it. <laughs> You can at least go to the go to these these restaurants knowing, well, it's at least going to be a minimum level of shit in this burger. <laughs> so I think that makes two really good points. And I'll start with the second one. The second point is that regulation isn't perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, you're right. Like often the balancing act that is being done by regulating agencies is between what's like feasible and possible and expected in the industry and the incentives of the consumers. Um, but the second point, which is related to the first point you made, Nathan, is that I've, I've worked in restaurants 
on both sides of that. The restaurants that were worried about the health inspector and the restaurants that were not. Yeah. And the thing is, you don't want to eat in the restaurants that are worried about the health inspector. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good (laughs) point. (laughs) That's the thing. It's like, there's a reason and we all benefit. There's a huge societal good from like putting these standards in place. And, And something that the market may never solve for. Like, yeah, in the case of a restaurant, like maybe the market will solve for the fact that like if it's a really dirty place, they'll get less business and eventually they'll go out of business and all that. And so like the clean restaurants will prevail. But the problem is like that's only accidentally true. That's not necessarily causally true. Because like what if you have, oh, I don't know, a society with extreme income inequality. Yeah. And the only restaurant that the poor people can afford to go to are the dirty ones. Yeah. And like, so without minimal standards, we're all worse off. Yeah. And on top of that, if there is no bar, like no bar that is set, then maybe you will have some businesses that will attempt to be barely above the bar in order to outstrip the competition. But they're not going to be much more above that bar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the old adage of of like minimum wage. If you are a restaurant that only pays minimum wage, you know that if the minimum wage were lower, you'd be paying that. Mm-hmm. Like anybody, any restaurant that pays minimum wage would be paying less if they could. Mm-hmm. All right. So for that reason, we want the bar to be higher. Yeah. We want the bar to be higher in terms of regulation and we want the bar to be higher in terms of labor protections yeah i think labor protections are a great example of this like the fact that like there was no limit on the length of a work day until like the 20th century the fact that people could work themselves literally to death trying to like to support their family the fact that there was no minimum wage the fact that like there were no worker protections like there was no um you know, like workers' compensation and no worker protections uh, if for like the safety of the workplace. Like all of these things, I think we just take so much for granted, not realizing how much worse things could be if we didn't have this basic kind of regulation. Yeah. Like there is this assumption that regulation is inherently bad, right? But the thing is, we actually have a lot of historical precedent to be able to demonstrate why that is just not true. Yeah. Before the labor movement, you had horrific conditions in the meat packing industry, both for the workers and for the meat. Mm-hmm. You had children working in mines. Mm-hmm. You had you had children working in unsafe conditions. Yeah. You had many children dying young. And it wasn't until the labor movement and ultimately the New Deal that you really had a creation of the middle class. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. basically it, it it effectively created the middle class to have these protections so that there could be a basic standard of living mm-hmm. for, for, for people, for, for people that are working full time. Yeah. All right. So limiting the amount of unsafe chemicals in food worked. Yeah, yeah. Setting Big a minimum surprise. wage worked. Yeah. All right? Setting labor protections worked. Mm-hmm. Now, it is also important to note, though, that 
regulation in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. You also have to have smart regulation, effective yeah. regulation based on actual research. And this is one of those this is one of those instances in which it really sucks that this has become such a politicized issue. Yeah, seriously. Because it feels like Michael and I sometimes need to automatically take the stance of regulation because Republicans mm. go off the rails at how stupid all regulation is and they just make the dumbest points and it feels like we have to defend it on principle because their arguments are just so stupid when that's time that we should be spending not just defending the concept of regulation, but figuring out, researching, and arguing over what is more effective and what yeah. is less effective. Yeah, I think that's such such good point. Regulation is not inherently good nor inherently bad. The question is, is it effective or not? Does it accomplish a good goal or not? And I think I think that's just so important. And I think it brings us to kind of the second kind of regulation that we wanted to talk about, which is, um, so those first kinds are regulating standards. The second kind is kind of is establishing incentives for companies to behave well in society. And and the way that this is done is um, in its in its best form, the most the the most effective or like the, the best kind of this regulation causes companies to internalize externalities. So let's let's break that down. So an externality is a cost of production, of doing business, of running an organization, all of these things. It's a cost, right? But it's an externality because it is not born by the business. It's born by society around the business. It's born by the public. And so when you cause a company to internalize externalities, what you are causing them to do is recognize and account for the full cost, the true cost of producing the things that they produce. And as a result, you drive that company to make decisions with the full cost of what they do in mind. So let's, let's take an example. Because the thing is, we, draw, we drew a distinction between the first type of regulation about standards and protections and the second type. But they're interrelated. Think about minimum wage. Minimum wage is an, a, a fantastic example because on the one hand, it's an obvious standard, right? We need to standardize the minimum amount we're willing to pay people for their work to elevate the cost of living. But truly what this does at its most basic level is force companies to internalize, if the minimum wage is set at the right level, to internalize the cost of employing people, right? So like, if you are employing someone, you're taking that person's time, right? Time that they could be spending doing other things, time they could be spending exercising or growing food for themselves, all of these things, you're taking their time and, and you are paying them for it, right? But if you're not paying them enough, they can't, they can't like fulfill all the needs that their time would have fulfilled otherwise, right? They can't grow their own food because they don't have time or they don't live in the, the right place to be able to grow their food. They, they can't purchase land to, to do that kind of thing. And so like uh, if you're paying them too little as a company, the people that have to pick up the bill for keeping these people literally alive, right, is the public through public assistance programs, right? You are literally giving them food through, through SNAP. You are providing them with health care that the company is not providing them. Even though without the health care that's being provided to these people, the company would not be able to function, 
right? Without people being alive, being able to eat, being able to work, the company wouldn't be able to function. So it's literally a cost of their doing business that they're not internalizing. Another powerful example is like carbon tax. It's like buying carbon offsets. This is like an imperfect example. And it's an example of incentivizing companies to take into account their costs, though maybe not incentivizing them to behave perfectly, right? So like a carbon offset, if you produce a certain amount of carbon into the environment, you can pay a certain amount of money to offset it elsewhere, right? Which causes the company not only to like literally offset the amount of carbon by reducing carbon emissions somewhere else, but also it forces them to say, hey, it actually costs us 20% more, whatever it is, to do this thing in a way that produces all this carbon. If we just produced it in a way that didn't produce all this carbon, we could save all this money. And so it is forcing them to recognize the true cost of their, of their business. And by internalizing that externality, you drive positive behavior by these companies. You align their incentives with the incentives of the public. All right, and now we will end the show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is the same as it was last week. And that's that this week will soon be over. Oh man, two weeks in a row. <laughs> two weeks in a row. That's tough. It's been rough. It's yeah. It's been rough. It's been rough. No, I mean, I, I okay, that. I guess I should say like, I, I did go to this really interesting conference last week, which was nice. like, it was, it was a lot of work. It was stressful. It was, it was related to, to disability and education in Virginia. Mm. Um, and like, I, I met some really great people. I learned some really interesting things. Um, you know, there are some aspects of it that I kind of didn't like, but overall it was a good experience. So I guess, you know what, let's be positive. That, that was my highlight. <laughs> that, that was my highlight. Fair enough. <laughs> what about Fair you, enough. Michael? What, what, what was your highlight? I'd say my highlight was uh, I got to hang out with one of my really close friends this past weekend, which is super fun. I haven't seen him for a while, um, and it was just really nice to be able to get to spend some time with him. Um, yeah, and my dog didn't end up burning down my house, so that's, I guess, a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good thing. Always yeah. a good thing. So now we will thank the amazing people that make this show possible. So first off, we'll thank our editor, Kayla Fanoff. Uh, for all the work that she does. And now we'll thank our patrons, Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen. Thank you for making this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. 